0: Welcome to PS, the Puget Sound podcast where we're talking with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker and my guest today is Kelly Johnson, an alum who graduated from Puget Sound in 2019. At Puget Sound, Kelly majored in psychology and had two minors in gender and queer studies and religion. As always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio in Tacoma. Here's Kelly.
1: Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. Super, My pleasure. Here. Very
0: happy to have you. Um, well, let's maybe start by setting the scene. So you graduated from Puget Sound in 2019, which on the day we're recording is probably almost exactly a year ago.
1: Yeah, I've been seeing all the uh, all the students from the class below me posting, you know, graduation photos and appreciation posts. So it's, it's wild. It's been almost a year.
0: And you have a extremely interesting signing job that I'm very excited to talk to you about. So you are the community outreach and volunteer engagement manager with University Behind Bars. Do yeah, you,
1: uh, Beyond Bars. Yeah. Beyond bars. Did I just say Behind Bars? Yeah, it's a very common um, mistake that folks make, but we, you know, we aim to be uplifting and liberating. So Beyond Bars is, uh, is the approach. Thank you for catching me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Did you start
0: right in that job when you graduated from Puget Sound? What was your your journey into that work?
1: Yeah, so um, I started interviewing for that position, actually, it must have been in April. Um, so I was still a student, and um, it was a pretty long and um, intricate interview process. So there were three different rounds. Um, the first was a phone call. Um, Just like getting to know me. Um, And then the second round of interviews was um, over FaceTime Um, and that was after I had graduated and I had flown back to uh, California, Oakland, California, which is where I'm from originally. Um, And I was there for about a month, um, which is where I did my phone interview or my um, Zoom interview. And then um, I ended up moving back to Seattle without a place to live um while i was waiting to hear back if i had made the third round of interviews um and at that point i was actually sleeping on um one of my old professor's couches while she was um traveling i think she was in europe somewhere with her family um and i was sleeping on her couch for a couple weeks um didn't have a job it was just like hanging out with my friends um she came back and I was crouch surfing for another couple weeks. So there was like two months, um, that I was just hanging out. And then, um, I found out that I made the third round of interviews, which was an interview with, um, folks that uh, were incarcerated at the prison that I work at right now. Um, and then they took a couple, like, I want to say a couple more days after that to get back to me. So all in all it took about three months for me to get that job. I started in, um, July, early July. So it's almost been a year now. Um, so there was, there was a slight, slight gap between graduation and, um, getting this job, but I was, you know, I'm very grateful for the, um, I got a little bit of a summer break and then, you know, jumped right into the working world.
0: And what do you actually do in your job? Help people to understand the the kind of work that both university beyond bars does, but also that you yourself do every day.
1: Yeah. Um, you know that should be a more straightforward question to answer than it actually <laughs> is. Um, you know, on our surface, so we're a um, an educational program. Um, we operate out of the Monroe Correctional Complex in Monroe, Washington, um, and uh, specifically we operate out of the Washington State Reformatory. It's the long-term, minimum, and medium security facility um, on that gr- on the grounds of Monroe Correctional Complex, and we provide um access to folks that are incarcerated there with college level education so associates degrees, um, some bachelor's level courses as well as um, some enrichment or certificate courses which are not for credit classes um, and a lecture series so um, we're a college to some degree um, we're a sanctioned 501c3 so we're a nonprofit status and we work with Seattle Central College um, to offer, Accredited university level courses. Um, I myself am uh, the volunteer manager, kind of mixed with a marketing and communications manager. So I run all of our social media. Um, go like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. Um, I also am in charge of our website. Um, I write our newsletters. Um, I'm also the point person for anyone interested in getting involved with our organization. So if you want to teach with us, if you want to volunteer with us, um, I am your initial point of contact. Um, I train all of our volunteers, help them get oriented and acclimated to working in a prison setting. Um, I help uh navigate help them navigate the Department of Corrections world, which can be somewhat convoluted and confusing. Um, I'm, I run our arts and lecture series. Um, so I find folks to come in, lecture in the prison. Um, I, do, I do a lot of different things. Uh, I wear a lot of different hats. We are a small organization. We're a staff of four. So um, we kind of all do everything, um, which is what can make that question hard to answer. Mm-hmm.
0: And how long has
1: University Beyond Bars existed? Um, so we were originally sanctioned as a 501c3, um, in 2005. Prior to that, um, we, we originated out of the Black Prisoners Caucus, which is, um, a group of, uh, folks of color who meet, um, in the prison and, um, they meet around, uh, prison reform, um, General and like community empowerment, um, they have a lot of different goals and um, purposes. But it's really just a way to connect communities of color. Um, and at the time, there was a book club that that was operating inside of the prison, um, and the guys uh, in that book club were really, you know, gung ho about having access to actual for credit um, college level uh, education. So sure. Um, they reached out to two of the volunteers that were part of the book club at the time or volunteering um, in the prison, uh, Gary Eidelberg and Carol Estes. And um, they like pitched that idea. They were like, hey, this is what we want to do. So they reached out to those two folks um, and Carol and Gary, you know, did the groundwork and the research into finding out like what becoming a 501c3 entailed, um, how to go about, you know, getting credit for college level courses, what does that mean? Should they become an, an actual university? Should they partner with somebody, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then in 2005, that's when we got our 501 C3 status. So um, that's kind of our origin story. We have grown pretty exponentially since that point. Um, at that point, we were only offering one uh, one class, I think, per year around that. Um, we were really struggling to find funding. Um, and, um, you know, now we have four full-time staff members. So, um, and we serve, we serve 200 to 200 to 300 students as a whole. There are 75 students in our associate's degree pathway. Um, so working to get their associate's degree. Um, so we have, we have grown quite a bit. And, was there any precedent for doing something like this at that time or any known precedent for it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so n- educational nonprofits that operate in prison settings um, have existed for decades. Um, we are, our organization is the product of somewhat of a unique um, set of circumstances, which is that in 1994, during the Clinton administration, the Clinton Crime Bill was passed, which banned federal funding from going to second chance, or sorry, going towards Pell Grants and um, federal funding for s- folks that are incarcerated to get their education. So what that resulted in um, was at the time prior to that bill, um, there were, you know, a couple hundred, I don't have the exact numbers on the top of my head, sure. a couple hundred Educational programs operating out of prisons and jails in the United States. After that bill was passed, the number dwindled down to around twelve. Holy um, smokes! Yeah. So you saw nonprofits start popping up um, all over the place to raise funds for folks that were incarcerated on their own. Um, so organizations had existed prior to that point doing what we were doing, um, and nonprofits throughout the country were popping up to try and fill that hole that was caused by the um, Clinton crime bill. Um, So to some degree, there was precedent that we were, you know, we were engaging in um, a landscape that was being forged kind of like we were building the ship as we were sailing it Mm -hmm. to some degree. Um, But there were other folks that we, you know, that we could use as models, you know, like the Bard Prison Prison Initiative um, and uh, other programs as well. So um, so yeah,
0: and in its present iteration, how does how does this work on a day to day basis? Who, who are your volunteers? Are these classes taught by college faculty? What's the experience like for someone who is working towards their
1: AA uh, with you all? Yeah, um, another great question. So, um, well. At the moment, because of COVID, sure. we are we are at somewhat of a hiatus. But um, so our our program is entirely free to the folks to the students that are taking courses with us, um, and we're able to uh, offer courses um, because we we spend a lot of time um, fundraising. We are largely funded by individual donors and grants. Um, We have a fundraising team inside of the prison that does a lot of that work um, that helps us write the grants. Uh, It's somewhat of a service learning course. Um, We work with them to teach them grant writing skills. Uh, We do all the research and find the grants that are um, accepting letters of intent and that kind of stuff. Um, So on the ground, we have uh, instructors from Seattle Central College, our community partner in this project. they help us supply, uh, professors and instructors to teaching the courses. Um, we also, so those are, that's specifically for our four credit courses that we offer. Um, and we offer around four or five of those per quarter. Um, we offer classes all, all day, every day, um, and all weekend. So we're kind of always on the clock, um, or I am at least, um, and uh, on top of the four credit courses, we also offer our certificate and enrichment classes. Um, those classes are taught by just members of the larger Seattle, um, King County community. Um, we have folks kind of come from all over the place that are interested in teaching with us. Um, so those folks reach out to us and um, you know either pitch a course, offer an abstract for a course that they wanna teach, um, or we reach out to previous volunteers that have you know, their master's in English or whatever it might be. Um, And the enrichment and certificate courses, we offer around seven of those uh, per quarter. Um, And they span from pretty much every discipline um, and structure. We've had a class on um, digital age preparation. So teaching students how to uh, open a new file on their desktop, how to save as um, just kind of those, like the basic function of laptops without internet. Um, Is had, internet
0: not that's not a part of this coursework, or not uh, allowed as part of this coursework?
1: Yeah. So incarcerated individuals um, in Washington State don't have access to internet. So um, period. Period. Yeah. There was there was a pilot program secure internet access um, out of the uh, Washington uh, Correctional Center for Women. Um, Down in Purdy, which is where the Freedom Education Project Puget Sound um, operates, Uh, and that was, you know, very limited scope. It's something the Department of Department of Corrections is looking into right now, but it is not, um, it is not accessible statewide. Which I
0: imagine would make teaching a college class a little more complex, because I presume a lot of these classes in the iterations that they're taught on Seattle Central's campus do expect that their students have some sort of access to internet, even. For services like turning in papers?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we are so lucky to have such a dedicated instructor community that we that we currently have. Um, our the instructors that come from Seattle Central, um, we work with them very closely and helping design their curriculum, um, helping navigate the restrictions around technology, around content. Um, Some of the content that you would see in a normal, you know, college level class might be considered something that, you know, crosses boundaries um, for the Department of Corrections. So um, our instructors put a lot of time and effort into um, putting things on paper, basically, um, reading through handwritten essays and that kind of stuff. So we're grateful to have laptops that aren't connected to Internet. Um, We only have around 25 of them, so they're not accessible for everybody. but um, we are you know, grateful to have the level of access that we do at the moment. Um, granted, I would love to see uh, internet be implemented into the Washington State prisons. I think that there's a huge benefit from being able to, um, at least from a reentry standpoint, of being able to prepare for what you will see once you re-enter into society. I think that's a huge barrier for a lot of folks. Um, but um, that is not to say that we are not grateful for what we have access to now. So
0: Sure. And to your point, a moment ago, it makes a lot of sense that you would want to have some curriculum centered around those types of things, around the kinds of things that when someone leaves the um, criminal justice system or completes a term of incarceration, that they have had some exposure to some of the things that maybe do not exist in prison.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we do everything that we can. Um, we're not a reentry program, but sure. um, as you know, and from an educational standpoint, right, the ways in which we process, um, you know, something that is presented to us that is interactive online might be very different from you know reading something in a textbook. Um, I think that there's a layer of like educational engagement um, and interaction that is. Um, more representative of what exists in the larger society right now outside of prisons and jails, but also just speaking to, um, like long-term memory consolidation and and whatnot. So, um, yeah, uh, there, it's been fascinating for me as, um, you know, someone who just graduated from college, having a very particular lens of what it means to be a student of what it means to be in college, um, to step into this environment where, um, you know, resources resources are so scarce, and they're so um, limited in, in in scope and scale. Um, it has changed my perception of, and my perception and appreciation for what it means to be a student, for what education has the capacity to do for folks. Um, yeah. So, can you
0: say a little bit more about that? What are some of the things that you've realized or learned that you just gestured at about the the possibility of education?
1: Yeah. Um, So, I mean, growing up, right, as someone who is a white middle upper class um, privileged person, education was something that was just like expected of me. It was this, it was this um, timeline that I was expected to walk, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, graduation, and then some kind of like higher ed probably at some point, et cetera, et cetera. It was just like, social script that we were all expected to follow. And I never questioned it. Um, and I also had somewhat of a disdain for it, right? Like I, you know, I'm, I'm not a conformist in many ways. Um, I am not one that just like follows social, social cues to that extent. Um, and so I, I I felt some, some resentment towards this like path that I was expected to walk. um, that wasn't to say that I wasn't appreciative for the like educational opportunities that I had, but I just like, I didn't think about it. You know, like these are like, this is, this is just what it means to be a person in the United States is you go and get an education. And Um, for a
0: lot of communities and in particular the communities you just described, that is sort of baked into the infrastructure of how you understand the world is it's, it's not something I think that oftentimes folks, think about as a choice, right? That is just the way that you proceed through the world. That's the infrastructure around you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think privilege can be blinding in a lot of ways, right? And one of those ways is that you don't question that. Right. Um, You don't question the infrastructure. And, you know, starting to work with University Beyond Bars, um, I started working with folks that were in their 50s and 60s that were going back and like getting getting their associate's degree. Folks that had gotten their GED in prison and you know had a seventh grade education prior to that point. Folks that th- that social script was not written for them. Um, so I think that was one, like what it means to be a student, what it means to be a learner has broadened in scope drastically. Like that means something so different to me. Um, and the ways in which we learn also, like we, I have always been passionate about, you know, um, accessibility and accommodations for folks with learning differences. I've been doing that kind of work since high school um, and is originally how I got into this work actually with FEPS. Um But I, I just, being in a prison setting where those accommodations are not made available to you, where you are confined to the resources that you have available, I just had a greater appreciation for all of the things that I had available to me in my educational journey. Um, And then last, lastly, and like arguably most importantly, like education, opened doors, education opens doors in ways that I could recognize, but not in the same, not to the same degree. Um, It has, my education has provided me with like the vocabulary to explore my own identity, um, which is amazing. And education also has the capacity to open doors, to like existence to liberation to um questioning the literal the literal constraints of like your surroundings when you're in prison so um i mean education is liberation in my head right especially for folks that are like maybe serving a life sentence and like they have education to build on they have um their courses as their, and their, their colleagues in those classrooms as their community. It's a healthy ac- healthy access to community, too. So um, there are many ways that my, my understanding of education has changed. Those are just a couple.
0: Hi there. I'm Robin Ijen, Director of Student Recruitment and an alumnus of the class of 2004. When it comes down to it, Any institution is really a collection of people, and I've always been proud to be part of this one. In the past few weeks, as the world has reacted to COVID-19, I've been even prouder. As we moved to online instruction, Puget Sound committed to paying its student employees for all of the hours they would have worked in the spring semester, and we've prorated room and board, meaning we refunded students for the days they're now not living on campus. We're paying our hourly staff members for their regular spring semester hours, too. And here in admission, we've extended the decision deadline for admitted students to June 1 because we know students and families have a lot on their minds. In short, Puget Sound has responded to COVID-19 with the humanity, thoughtfulness, and heart that you find every week right here on the Puget Sound podcast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Kelly, you alluded to this earlier But I also want to ask about your path to this work. You mentioned an interest in high school and accessibility and educational accommodation. And then you've also referred to the Freedom Education Project Puget Sound, which I want you to describe for folks as well. But walk me through how you got to where you are.
1: Yeah. um, So in high school, um, I was part of a program called Eye to Eye, um, and it's a mentoring program that pairs folks uh in high school and college with learning differences, with individuals in elementary school that also have learning differences. Um, and we used an art-based approach to help students explore their learning styles, learn to best advocate for themselves, um, all of these things. And so that was like my first introduction into to like advocate educational advocacy and empowerment. Um, and then when I came to college, um, I, you know, took a step back and kind of focused on my education for a while. Um, I worked at the cellar, so I had like, you know, your classic college job working at a pizza shop, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then my senior year of college, I, um, I became close with Tanya Erzin, who is a professor um, of religion and gender studies. Um, and was the executive director of uh, the Freedom Education Project Puget Sound, which is our um, University Beyond Bars kind of like sister organization. We partner together in a lot of ways. Um, They're also a college education program, and they um, operate out of the Washington Correction Center for Women in um, Gig Harbor. So um, Tanya was my thesis advisor, and um, at the time, um, I was doing advocacy work and um, I would say just say like general movement building work um, around queer liberation and queer and trans liberation generally Um, and she asked uh, Tanya asked if I would be willing to come in with a handful of other students to talk um, with a group of uh, incarcerated folks about the state of queer activism um, outside of prison so that was the first time that I ever went into a prison. Um, and I just had this, I'm going to speak to my experience and then I'm going to like broaden it. But I had this very profound experience where, um, I was talking to these folks, um, these prisoners who I had never met before and all I had to, you know, fill my expectations were these social ideas of what it meant to be incarcerated. These like very harmful ideas of what, um, what people who are in prison are like, Um, and I went into that experience with those expectations, um, and came out with this realization, right, that folks who are incarcerated are just like every, everybody else, um, mass incarceration impacts, you know, there are 2.3 million people who are impacted by mass incarceration in the United States. Um, not to mention the family members and friends of, and loved ones of all of those folks, um, And I don't think we necessarily think about the scale of that number. Um, Anyway, that's going off on somewhat of a tangent, but. I'm trying to think of an
0: example. I think the population of Washington state right now is about 8 million. Right. So a quarter roughly Mm -hmm. of the population of the state of Washington.
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah. uh, That's a ton
0: of people. It is a hard number to get your head around.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think you know, the media does a really good job of painting criminality in a certain way um, and painting folks with criminal records in a certain way. Um, anyway, so I went into the prison uh, in the, to the Washington the Washington Correctional Center for Women to speak to these uh, folks about queer activism. Um, and my experience was really, I learned more from them in that, you know, two and a half hour block than I could ever, ever teach them about. Um, I was like incredibly moved by their passion for like queer liberation um, and queer inclusion and their broad definitions of that. And so um, from that point on, I was like really itching to find a way to get involved um, in prison abolition work and um, just like work with incarcerated populations. Um, and so I talked to Tanya um, and one of the ideas that we had, I was prepping for my psychology practicum at the time. Um, and we had the idea to frame my, shape my psychology practicum around, um, around prison education. So our plan was to, that my, that my role would be to develop a foundation for support for students with learning differences um, in the FEPS program. So I spent the last semester of my college experience working with um, incarcerated folks um, and the Washington Correction Center for Women. Um, helping to establish some kind of guidelines or foundation um, to support folks with, you know, ADHD, dyslexia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So that's originally how I first got involved in this work. It was just convenient that University Beyond Bars was hiring at the time of my graduation. Um, But that was kind of like my door into that world. And from that point, I have I mean, I have spent a lot of time obviously in my professional um, career working with prison education. But um, outside of that, I also do uh, prison abolition work and continue working towards um, an idea of liberation that includes everybody, so.
0: One of the themes that has come up again and again on the podcast, and I'm hearing implicit in what you've just said, is the way in which the person that somebody is at the start of their college experience, has seeds of the person that they will be at the end, things that they're interested in or ideas that they care about, but that those things often manifest in ways that you, that you just literally can't imagine, right? You maybe don't know the people or the places or the programs where those seeds will be able to take root. Does that feel true to you in both this example, but also in other ways when you think about your college experience?
1: Yeah, totally. I, I'm smiling to myself because I've thought a lot about this. Um, I think inherent in abolition work, um, in prison abolition work, there's this idea of like personal growth and and change um, that I think we all have the capacity for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have changed drastically throughout my lifetime and definitely through my college experience. I think back to where I was my freshman year of college and who I was at that point. And it is not at all who I am today, but when I think back around the the core values that have like guided me in my life, I think those are the things that have remained the most consistent for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I have always been a community oriented person. Um, In high school, I went to a Catholic school, which was um, not ideal for someone who is gay and Jewish uh, (laughs) for, for lack of a better term. Um, and so, you know, I had to create my own space to exist there. I had to create my own communities. Um, I started the Gay Straight Alliance, um, which, you know, took a lot of hoops to jump through and, um, arguments that were had, um, I imagine guts also to some degree. Um, I think at that point, you know, I was, I came out when I was in middle school. And so I, I was not about to shove myself back into the closet. So. I'm not, I'm definitely not one to hide who I am. Um, You know, you can say that that's guts or you can say that's um, just being honest to the person that you are. Um, I think it honestly can be harder. It can take more guts to like code switch and pretend that that you're someone that you're not than it does to just live freely. Um, Not to say that both aren't difficult, but um, with the social constraints, I think being being unique to who you are is um is important uh anyway um so in high school right i i started the gay straight alliance and then coming to college um i think puget sound has a very particular community that it that it orients itself to and that it speaks to um that's yeah i mean puget puget sound was um really the space that i the first space that i felt that i could that I didn't have to force myself on people, right? That there was a space for queer kids on campus already. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm just like, I'm thinking about this. Um, anyway, when I got to Puget Sound, um, it took me a while to figure out like what where my community was in that because I didn't have to create it for myself like I had <laughs> always had to. Um, and it led me toward to gender studies. It led me to the gender studies program, which ultimately is... Um, where I first you know developed the vocabulary to explore my identity and to question things about gender and sexuality that I had always been told or expected to adhere to and I think that helped instigate a lot of growth in myself and in my life so yeah I think there are definitely seeds of who I was um, looking back as far as I can remember and I think like our ability to feed those seeds and to um, Nurture them is something that varies from person to person. I don't know if that necessarily speaks to your your comment before your question, but
0: yeah, no, it does. And the I think the next question, maybe this is an offshoot. I'm really strong with the plant metaphors today. Yeah. Um, maybe this is an offshoot of the of what I just asked. But are there things that stand out to you in your college experience so now that you have a little bit of space after the? I don't want to say end because I. As you've gestured to, education goes on and on. Um, but maybe the post campus part of that experience, are there things that you think about that stand out as, oh, that was really special or that was really impactful or that was a, a particularly meaningful part of my time at Puget Sound?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the relationships that I was able to develop with my professors. Um, it's one of the things that I was like really looking for when I was applying to colleges. I wanted a, you know, small school feel. I wanted the close campus. Um, what I really wanted was to go to Hogwarts, but you know, I had to settle <laughs> for EPS. Um, and it's because I, you know, I'm a am peop- a people person. Um, I am a ridiculous extrovert. Anyone who knows me knows that, um, partially the Aquarius in me, partially my mom. Um, but. <laughs> coming to UPS, I was able to really like build relationships with my professors in a way that um, I think impacted my learning um, more than almost anything else on that campus. Um, I'm still very close with a lot of my professors. Uh, I have developed friendships, working relationships with them very randomly. Um, somehow I am still in this in this world with Tanya. Um, I'm still very close with Heather. So um, I think having folks that know you, that know not who you are as a student, but who you are as a person, does more, um, does more, did more for me in my education than I think anything else. Um, That probably stands out to me the most.
0: Kelly, we end every podcast by asking everybody the same four questions. The first question is, what's your favorite place on campus?
1: That, you know, I think, oh God, that is such a hard question for me to answer. Um, I spent so much of my time haunting the the halls of Wyatt that I feel like I have to say, you know, Wyatt is probably my favorite place on campus because it holds the most sentimental meaning to me. Um, but I also, this is probably not a unique answer, but Hearted, um and the Thompson Courtyard, also stunning, beautiful. Um, what are you reading right now? I'm actually reading, uh, it's this book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I'm reading it as part of a community read project um, that my, uh, the nonprofit that I work for, University Beyond Bars, is doing. So um, we're reading it in collaboration with our volunteers, our instructors, our incarcerated students, our staff, our board. Um, so I'm reading that right now. It's been a great way to connect with the larger community during this like seemingly isolated time. Hmm. Where is the best place to eat in Tacoma? Uh, um, every time I drive back to Tacoma, I stop at MSM. So I feel like I have to say MSM, those sandwiches are bomb. Um, I also love Brewer's Row. Um, big fan of, uh, of their food as well. Um, those are probably my, my initial go-tos. Yeah. And lastly, why is Puget Sound special? Um, I think Puget Sound is special for me because it was, it's the campus that facilitated the most growth I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's the place where I was able to, like, put roots down, um, learn what community meant, um, find, I, I was able to, like, find a discipline that I am so passionate about I want to dedicate my life to, um, I think Puget Sound is special because it creates the space for folks to do that for themselves. Um, That's why Puget Sound is special to me.
0: Kelly Johnson, thanks for joining me on the Puget Sound podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to P.S., the Puget Sound podcast. If you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound, you can find out more at pugetsound.edu admission. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at univ, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. I'm Elena Becker, and we'll see you next time for P.S., the Puget Sound
1: podcast.